Yes, I consent to being recorded. <laughs> That's good. I'm just going to say how funny it is that when we start out, we were dressing in you know shirts and dressing nice, and now it's Sunday afternoon. We're in lockdown, yeah, and we really uh, stepped it down a notch. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to ABCs of Anesthesia. And this is part four of an interview tip series. Uh, and this will go out as a podcast and YouTube as well. So in this episode, we're going to go through some other factors or other situations that might come up in the interview. And this is like professional issues, the non-clinical stuff, ethical questions. And so specifically, what we're going to cover is clinical governance, audits, uh, the national standards, and then a couple of other things in terms of you know ethical questions, the impaired colleague, and other questions that you know might trip you up in an interview. Um, so yeah, my name is Lahiru, and I've got here Kaz, who's a resident interview expert, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you've just been through so many, much much uh, more recently than I have, Kaz. So that's why yeah. I put that out there. It's taken up a lot of my life for the last uh, decade or so. Four years <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey, you, you, every year you're preparing for interviews, preparing for a month or two, and uh, yeah, that, that's just what happens. That's um, it, yeah. So what do, what do you what do you reckon, Kaz? Um, let's talk about clinical governors. Now, this is obviously far more of a consultant interview question, but I thought it'd be good to talk about it. So, you know, what, what what's this fancy word? What is clinical governance? Um, so I guess the formal definition of clinical governance is that it's a set of relationships or responsibilities that are established by a health service or a hospital um, between its state or territory department of health, the governing bodies, as well as the executive, the workforce, the patients, and the consumers, and also other stakeholders to ensure good clinical outcomes. That's a so fantastic that's a bit of a, definition. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a wordy definition. And I think, um, you know, if you can recreate that in an interview, that's phenomenal, but I, I don't really think that's expected. Um, the version of this that I often used was, you know, mm -hmm. clinical governance is a set of um, relationships and responsibilities that I established to ensure optimal patient care against the best available evidence. Um, and everything you have within that structure is to allow that to happen. And yeah, that, that covers it relatively well. That sounds good. And I, and I noticed that this really is about, yep, so it's about ensuring good clinical outcomes. And it's just a set of responsibilities and relations, relationships between the health body, that's your, you know, your state governing body and all the stakeholders, you know, and you can just re really name everyone, executives, workforce, patients, consumers, and other stakeholders. So a bit of a mouthful, but you know, if you, if, if you just have a subtle understanding or very brief understanding of that, I, th I think that will impress in the situation that you get that as a question. Yeah. Um, so the next question, there's probably not much more we need to really chat about that. Well, I, I guess, um, how would you answer a question about this? So if someone says, what is clinical governance? Would you rattle off the seven pillars or would you, um, you know, how, how would you, how would you use these concepts to answer a question? Oh, that's, that's, that's a good question. So if they literally just asked clinical governance, I would, I'll just make, make sure that I had a reasonable understanding of that definition. Yeah. And then I guess you could go on to those national standards. I think that's what you're mentioning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just to go through those national standards, so these are the national standards, which have, you know, I think every, everyone should know them because a lot of what we do in the hospital in terms of auditing and compliance and training and education and research is about these standards. So, you know, standard one to 10, so governance for safety and quality in health service organizations. Number two is partnering with, with consumers. Three is preventing and controlling healthcare-associated infections. Four is medication safety. Five is patient identification and procedure matching. Six is clinical handover. Seven, blood and blood products. Eight, preventing and managing pressure injuries. 
Nine is recognizing and responding to clinical deterioration in the acute health care. And 10 is preventing falls and harm from falls. So you'll notice that a lot of these things you'll be thinking, oh, if you didn't know about the national standards, you'll now realize that a lot of the things we do and a lot of the audits that occur in terms of, you know, hand washing or medication safety, having alerts constantly out there on your EMR, as well as at the meetings that we go to, there's a lot of medication safety stuff, like, you know, the pinch drugs being the, uh, the dangerous drugs. And then a whole bunch of stuff, especially perioperatively around patient identification, um, ISBAR around clinical handover, a lot of blood product training. So you, you can just see how much of this has infiltrated into the systems that you might work in. And mm. just having a rough idea of a few of these is probably probably a good idea. What do you think, Hans? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, you know, quite interestingly, the nat- national standards are um, kind of the Australian National Health Association's um, adaptation of, of the kind of the classical clinical governance pillars, which you can Google and look up anywhere. And, and they're very similar and there's a lot of crossover, but I think the national standards are actually how we accredit hospitals and how we assess um, the quality of the care we're giving, and it's um, how a lot of the initiatives within hospitals are established as well. So I think like Larry said, you don't have to necessarily know everything. It's If you're going for the college, if you have a bit of time, memorize it. It's not, it's not terribly hard. Um, it can be helpful, but I think it's then about thinking of how is it applied. So um, I would just pick three that you're comfortable with and then think about how, um, how you could then apply it to improve patient care and how even you as an individual have applied them. So you know, medication, medication safety is probably super relevant for anesthesia, clinical handover is super um, relevant for anesthesia, patient identification, and procedure matching. You know, those three are huge things that we think about and do every single day. And they're very easy things to um, talk about in relation to anesthesia. The other version of this question is, you know, how do you, how do you practice clinical governance? Um, and really, you know, all, all, all these different standards can come down into three main pillars, which is uh, audit, um, or the audit cycle, research, and teaching and education. I think you've um, I think you've summarised that really well. So if someone had no idea of clinical governance, so that's the overarching umbrella. I really love that you've got this framework of how to make it practical, and I'm I'm really impressed by that. That's really great. So the fact that most of us can kind of talk about audits, research, and education as the pillars of that. No, I really like that, Kaz. Hmm. Exactly. So um, having those three, I think, is, is enough. That's all I said for my interview when I got asked this. Um, and I think that's just a good approach to do it. So yeah. it, it, in, interestingly, I was uh, I recently, uh, we'll talk more about this, my personal experience of being on one of our interview panels, because the interview in many situations <clears throat> will be the deciding factor of whether you get the job or not. And so if you haven't thought about these things, I think, I think it's really good. Even if you don't get asked, it'll give you confidence and structure your thoughts in a way that I think consultants and the people interviewing you really understand because that's something that they live and breathe every day. So just to move on then, this is probably a far more relevant question. Uh, Kaz, t- tell us about the audit cycle. Because a lot of us trainees uh, will be you know, doing audits constantly as part of our you know, role in various rotations. So yeah, what, what is the audit cycle? Yeah. So look, the audit cycle um, is essentially the process by which we um, de- we determine a standard uh, to assess our practice against. Um, and then the audit cycle is the process by which we do that. So the steps are you identify an audit topic. So when I was a resident, I did an um, audit on perioperative normothermia. So there was a standard by both the NIS guidelines as well as ANSCA on reducing perioperative um, hypothermia to reduce the associated complications. And then you set the standards. So the standards already been established by both ANSCA and a bigger international body like um, NICE. 
And so you're talking about the nice, the nice guidelines, NICE. Nice. I was just trying to be fen- a fancy in French. Fancy, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the nice guidelines. Um, what does it stand for, though? Do you remember off the top of your head? You know what? I don't actually. Why don't I quickly look that up? Because that would probably was. I, I refer to these guidelines I'm a, all the time. All the time. I'm a big fan of them. Yeah. So the so the nice guidelines, um, which stand for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, um. So that was the, the set standard, and then you collect data. So this is this is what we generally say as the audit that we are doing. So you collect data that reflects your practice. Um, so the process of, of how I did this was we got a number of consultants to record um, perioperative temperatures of patients pre uh, preoperatively, intraoperatively, mm-hmm. and postoperatively, and then you analyze the data and you assess whether the standard was met. And then the final step of the uh, the audit cycle, which I think often gets uh, missed, is you actually implement change based mm-hmm. on based on that study. Fantastic. So just to reiterate, then, so you identify the audit topic, set the standard; it may already be set. Collect the data, analyze the data, and then implement change. Now, hopefully, people can remember that. But I, I believe in silly mnemonics, <laughs> and so if you just remember ISCAI. I feel like that's something that you could potentially hang hang on to and hopefully remember during during this process. But a lot of it's logical as well. Setting the standard, collecting data, analyzing it, implementing change. It really is the scientific method, just made a bit fancy and chuck the audit word inside it and put a few arrows to make it a circle. Amazing. <laughs> and 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 I guess if someone's answering this question, um, like, would you would you care if they missed one? Like, would you care if they missed no. the? No, exactly. It doesn't matter, right? I I really respect a rough idea of something because yeah. I, I, don't, I don't I don't rate memory that much yeah. though I think memory does give you confidence um, I, I, you know I believe in structures and frameworks because a lot of knowledge and memory can hang on to that and we'll definitely go into that stuff in some of our later especially when we go through clinical scenarios mm. um, so tell us about the college specific things so there's a few things that have been come out more recently I think a statement on cultural sensitivity and gender equity as well as um, indigenous health um, what do you reckon? Those are things to look into detail or just be aware of? Um, somewhere in between, really. I think if you're completely ignorant of them, um, it, it makes it a bit challenging. Um, you know, in saying that, if you're reasonably, if you're a reasonable person whose um, views are relatively in line with what the college's views are, you can probably get by with saying what you think they would want to say. Um, and people have definitely done this in interviews and, and it's fine. It, it, what, it's what, what are you saying? That if I don't agree with it, I should just say I do? Is that... that's that's a very uh, challenging line of questioning well i I think i I think um what they're stating in these in these um statements is stuff that just it's just really compassionate stuff so i'd be i'd be quite shocked if people disagreed with the the stuff that's saying you know gender equity equality of opportunity for people you know trying to trying to protect the most vulnerable people in our community these are I feel like these are just really nice things that everyone should be thinking about. Exactly. Um, and if you actually read some of these documents, there's a there's a fair bit of time given to, um, I think, appreciation or appreciation of opposite views. Um, yeah. And I think that's something our college does really well. They kind of go, look, we know not all members might reflect these, but this is what the majority reflect. And we, and we think this is in line with the ethos of the college. And therefore, we're making this statement. Um, and I think they did the same thing when they made a statement on... Um, that family that's currently held in detention um, mm-hmm. and aren't being allowed to settle. Um, so I think the college does that really well, and kind of they, they they aren't making it seem like they reflect everyone, but they reflect the majority. So I think I think that's what you know you should you should say because that they are your they are still your governing body. So I guess have a general idea of 
um, what the policy is. If you have a chance to look through them, it's super helpful. It doesn't take very long. So I looked through the last few bulletins, um, saw that there were a number of topics that were kind of, um, you know, in vogue or um, kind of was the uh, was the priority of um, the current president or the previous president at the time. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of know, know a few pillars, know what their approach is and know what they want to do. And that's really it. Um, I think have three points. I'm a big fan of threes. Um, I'm a simple man. So just have, have three, three things that they want to achieve and three ways that they go about achieving it. And I think that's a good, good way to prepare for this sort of question. Yeah, sounds good. So that was, we, we talked a bit about clinical governance and then things that move out of that audit cycles, research education, the national standards. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully now that you've heard this, you hopefully you do get a question because I feel like a lot of people won't be able to answer this in an eloquent way. So I guess another question that's very related to the college, um, which does get asked quite often, is what you know about the college or what you know about the training program. And I think this really helps differentiate a prepared candidate. And, and essentially, there's no right answer. Um, and you don't need to really sell yourself in this question. You just want to show them that you care enough about this job to understand it. So, um, you know, a common way, a common form of this question is, um, someone will ask you, you know, Lahiru, what do you know about the ANSCA training program? Okay. And that would be something that hopefully you've looked at the 2013 curriculum and yep. you know basically what it is, introductory training, basic training, advanced training, a few of the hurdles to get through those, finally into fellowship. Um, and I think if you just had a broad understanding of those hurdles and their expectations, maybe the volume of practice requirements, the workplace-based assessments, including the CXs, DOPS, and uh, case-based discussions. I feel like those are probably the things that come up time and time again in your training that take most of your time, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think the, um, the exams as well. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the primary exams are a huge hurdle um, and the interview panel know it's a huge hurdle and it is in their interest to get candidates who mm. they think are going to pass. And I think, I think a, a pillar of that more than, you know, your academic performance is, is do you appreciate it's a difficult exam? Yeah, that's um, right. And then one of the questions I think you get asked is, um, you know, I think one of the questions they've asked in the past is um, the, the primary exam is very challenging. A lot of people fail it. How do you, how do you plan to get through this? Mm, um, I got asked, you know, what do you think will be the challenge? What do, you, what do you think is the main challenge of the anesthetic training program? And I said the exam and I was not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we've all suffered, but uh, you more recently, congratulations <laughs> on getting through that. <laughs> um, and so I, th- I think have a basic idea of the structure of the exam, uh, what the format is. You don't need to know huge amounts of detail. Just, you know, show them that you care enough about this job to, um, to, to, to learn a little bit about it, essentially, mm. is, is what this comes down to. And maybe maybe a little bit about that. Like, what does it take to pass this exam? Broadly speaking, it's a it's a long amount of study. I'd, I'd say up to twelve months of study. And uh, this number that's bandied around is a thousand hours of study. So mm-hmm. when you divide that up into a year or say fifty weeks, that's twenty hours a week. So that's say you know two hours every night, weeknight, and maybe you know five hours on each weekend day. And that's that's an incredible amount of work. Yeah. Uh, but just that two hours during the day, because you're immersing yourself in study during, you know, lists as well as afterwards, it is doable, but it is an incredible time requirement. Uh, And then other kind of peripheral things like uh, making sure that you're, you know, registered for the exam, you sign up to it, you've got a study group, you've got all your resources, which includes having your, you know, uh, having all the notes and the exam papers and a study plan. Um, I think being able to talk to these points pretty fluidly, uh, seamlessly would be, would be a real benefit to you. Yeah. And I think the best way to do it is chat to people who set the exam. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everyone has, um, 
I guess, opinions um, uh, about how, how to pass the exam. And I think they're all really valid. Um, and I think just ha- have a bit of a think about it. And I think if you, if you show that you thought about it and you appreciate it's challenging, that's all you really need to know. And, um, you know, so I spoke about a lot about kind of how to study, study techniques. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as Larry knows, I got, I got really deep into this in a really nerdy way about kind of the psychology of studying. And, and, and that's kind of how I prepared for it. And I generally looked at a lot of that before my interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, that's kind of what they want. Yeah, that's right. And most importantly, listen to the Anesthesia Coffee Break podcast because you know everything's in there. <laughs> Completely shame joking. It's a shameless yeah, yeah. plug. <laughs> Jokes aside, you, you really should. It's a great podcast. <laughs> um, excellent. I think that's probably um, as much as we want to cover for college-specific stuff. Um, excellent. So just to recap, I guess what we've gone through is the clinical governance and how it relates to things like research, the audit cycle, uh, education, and then the national standards. And there's 10 standards and being able to potentially talk about them, what what have you what, you, what you've seen in hospital, as well as how you've implemented some of these standards. And I liked what you said uh, about the three three pillars of it, which was the audit, research, and education yeah. uh, that you probably already have a lot to do with. Um, that's good. So moving on to the next question, this is probably a far more common question to get at a junior level, which is the more ethical questions. You know, what would you do in certain situations that are prickly, that are very difficult to think about and hopefully never happen in your career? And if they do rarely happen, it's, it's very tough to deal with. Um, so one of these is the impaired colleague. And I, and I when, when we were chatting about this before, I think Kaz had a really good mnemonic and a good way to structure this. So yeah, what, what do you reckon? If you get the question of, you know, you're about to do a theater list and your consultant or one of the other registrars or someone, maybe the surgeon seems to be impaired seems to be under the influence. You smell alcohol in their breath or something of that nature. How do you approach this? Um, so there's a mnemonic that I can't take credit for. So, um, which is pies. Um, so the principles of this are patient safety, investigate, escalate and safety and support. Um, and I guess three other things just to kind of keep in your mind is that what interviewers want from this is that you're non-judgmental, that you don't ju- jump to com- conclusions, um, and that you behave in a professional way. So, you know, accosting the person and, um, uh, you know, having a shouting match in, in the theater is probably not a professional or a empathetic, empathic way to approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the college does a lot of work on kind of this, this sort of stuff and the fundamental thing that they want to, um, they try to get across is you know re- rehabilitation as a per- as opposed to um, re- repercussion. I can't remember that. There's a word that they use, but essentially um, the goal is to rehabilitate um, people who are affected and get them back to work. Um, it's not about actually um, you know punish punishing them or or, or um, penalizing them. So um, I guess coming back to the question. So the main thing you want to do is make sure the patient's safe. Um, so h- how is the patient safe to compromise? So well, if someone's um, you know, drunk, inebriated, otherwise drug affected, their decision making and the quality of the care they can deliver is compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, in another way, if someone goes, well, they're just stealing fentanyl or ketamine, how does that affect patient safety? Well, their patient's not getting adequate analgesia. So they're going to wake up in pain. And that's actually a, an element of patient safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so ensure what you can to make sure the patient's safe. And that might mean that you give them more analgesia, um, you know, if you're taking over the case or you escalate to someone a bit earlier and make sure the patient's safe. Um, and if someone's drunk and um, is unable to do their job properly, I think you need to escalate much, much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one is, is I, so investigate. So it's, it's a key thing here that you want to find out as much as you can, as quickly as you can, as safely as you can. Um, and another principle here is don't assume the worst. So assume the best, uh, assume um, that you might be wrong, that your information might be wrong. 
um, and it's about being professional in this aspect. So um, how would you go about investigating um, a drug-affected colleague though? Yeah, so I think I think it's very tricky. And even at a junior level, this is again something that you probably need to escalate because by investigating by yourself, I mean it's it's not your role. This is definitely above your pay grade, above your level of responsibility. And just to know that there's many ways that you know people in the right positions know how to do this. So um I think I, I think it's almost um a way of checking in that uh, I feel like investigating is not necessarily your responsibility. Um, but it is up to you to not be judgmental and be more concerned about patient safety and your colleague's safety. Um, so that really leads on to escalation. So just know that a lot of these things you will hopefully never be ultimately responsible for because there's people that are more senior and are trained in this. And you know that includes the senior nurses, your consultant mentors, the director of the department, maybe the chief medical officer. And all of these people have are far more capable of doing that. And, and in these junior roles, you'll never be asked to be, you know, confront this on your, on your own. Even in a senior role, you would never really confront this on your own. It'd be a team effort because it's such a tricky area to navigate. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I think most consultants wouldn't, um, mm. you know, in, intend to uh, manage this by themselves. You know, everyone would escalate to the department head, mm. um, whoever's on the floor and then the appropriate um, executive um, with getting help. So mm. you as a resident or a registrar, definitely not. I mean, you definitely yeah, right. lean on people around you. That's right. Now, in terms of safety of the colleague and staff, that, that's, um, you know, that's, that, I, f- I found that this was so important. There's a lot of things I didn't know, especially in the anesthetic context. There's a really high suicide risk, uh, say, if someone is found to be taking drugs and is confronted. Um, so there's, there's a, one of our documents, one of our welfare documents um, on the impaired colleague or you know, finding out that someone is at risk or has been confirmed as taking medications or, you know, illegal medications. Uh, There's a thing that says you you cannot leave them alone. That's in the college documents, because if you were to leave them alone and and they were just to go home by themselves, for example, they're at a very high suicide risk. So one of, one of our, you know, one of, one of those um, avenues of management really is to escalate to, you know, to, to, um, to the duty psychiatrist and potentially have that patient managed uh, have your colleague managed as an inpatient. This is such a tricky situation. So I don't expect anyone to know the detail of this, but to know that there's a high suicide risk and you have a feeling that this patient, or sorry, this colleague shouldn't be left alone is probably some extra insight that would be important to know. Exactly. And also some appreciation of the um, the pathways to supporting them. So you don't need to know specifics, um, but I think knowing that you would have to support them personally in terms of... Um, you know, addressing their issues and um, kind of supporting the, the rehabilitation um, and getting them safely back to work. You'd want to support them at a uh, departmental level. So, um, you know, ensuring kind of um, the, the the matter is handled in a professional way and then supporting them at a college level. So finding ways to keep them, um, get them back to work essentially. And um, if you wanted to really go for brownie points, you could then say, support them on a societal level. So there's, you know, really other stuff, but family and friends and um, the other non-work related personal stuff that I think are are really challenging in confronting this sort of an issue. Um, And I actually think there was a great um, article written by an anesthetist in New Zealand. I think he was in uh, Waikato who um, was actually um, had a, was diverting fentanyl for a large part of his career. And he's actually come out and spoken out about his, his experience. So, um, when he was diverting, how his rehabilitation process, how he relapsed, how he then got rehabilitation. And he's actually written an article in the new bulletin as well. So 
Um, we'll, maybe we'll put a link um, in the show notes. I, I kind of recommend everyone read it. It's a pretty eye-opening mm. and um, confronting piece. Have you come across it a lot? I haven't actually. And yeah. it's, it's important to think about because you know, you're embarking upon a career that is pretty high risk in many ways uh, for your own safety and health, let alone patient safety and health. Um, and just to know that no one ever embarks upon a career thinking that it's going to happen to them. Mm. So just to be aware of, of that story, I can imagine would be very eye-opening and yeah, very useful. Okay, so that's that's pretty good. Um, so essentially, we've gone through the PIE's approach: so patient safety, investigate, escalate, and then safety of the colleague and staff, and a few ways to do that. Um, and then, really, we can. Uh, that, that's it. I was gonna. I was gonna say that. Hopefully, this doesn't happen in your interview, but this can be made very, very difficult when the time frame between the you're, you're discovering the person is impaired and they're about to interact with a patient in a very serious manner, such as an anesthetic induction or you know full full surgery, mm. uh, means that you have to escalate much quicker. So just just imagine how uncomfortable that would be in real life and how, why the escalation of this process might have to happen much sooner. So I think, you know, it can be quite easy if you just notice that the patient, that the, um, your colleague is a bit impaired, but if they're about to do something, it, you know, it's, it's, it's your absolute duty as a medical practitioner to um, put patient safety first. And in a junior role, I think escalation is the remedy for that. Yeah, so that actually leads on really well to um, another concept, which is um, communication in a crisis and greater assertiveness. So, mm. you know, if someone's about to do something, say, um, um, that is, you know, puts a patient at a danger or themselves at danger, um, you know, there's the greater assertiveness uh, mnemonic, which is pace. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you can probe, you can alert, you can challenge, and you can they call it emergency, but but you can essentially escalate it quickly. So, um, you know, um, it, it'd be pretty hard to apply this to this situation where someone's drug affected, but you could probe it by going, oh, you know, do you think maybe I should do the intubation alert? Can we actually wait for someone else to get here? Challenge, please stop what you're doing while we get the in charge. Emergencies, stop what you're doing. Um, that's really challenging to apply to this. This is more in, in the in the realm of maybe someone um, about to do something, you know, ignoring or not noticing a hypertensive patient on induction. Um, you'd use the pace mnemonic to mm. address that, but I, you could also use it in this situation. That's if, true if you're pushed to make a decision quickly in the interview. But that's true. Uh, a lot of these are, you know, just frameworks that come up outside of the clinical sphere, really. And one of them is, you know, wh- what do you know about greater assertiveness? Mm-hmm. Once I hear those words, I think pace approach, exactly how you said. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty good. So right. then let's talk about a few other of these kind of ethical questions where, uh, and and these are probably a little less, um, <laughs> a little less, tense than the one we just dis- discussed yeah. and one of them is colleague not pulling their weight so not doing as much of the work as they should be maybe the trainee's not coping with exams or stress um and then potentially pa- patient ethics so end of life discussions and family not wanting them to know about a diagnosis or something like that um so how do you apply this kind of framework to that yeah so i guess we'll start with the colleague not pulling their weight or a perception of a colleague not pulling their weight. So common question, common scenario. I think everyone's been through this at some point. Um, and I think it really speaks to a lot of the conflict in the workplace that this is generally handled really poorly by everyone. Um, so in the interview answer that you would give for this is um, patient safety. So again, if someone's not pulling their weight, are you compromising the care because you're now taking a bigger workload or someone else is taking a bigger workload and not delivering the same quality of care? Um and then I also would put personal safety in there. So the person's um, safety. So, you know, if they're not pulling their weight, you need to make sure that they're 
mentally and physically okay um that they're they're safe and they're being supported as well so i would actually probably move that a bit earlier than than the s in pies investigate try to find out more ask them and again you can again bring pace into this so you can investigate a number of ways you can you generally should investigate in a non-accusatory and non-confrontational way just going hey i've noticed you've been late a few times i'm like how are you going is everything okay um it's just been a bit tough like getting everything sorted when when you've been late um and then if then you can escalate that to going hey like i've noticed you've been late it's been being really hard I'm actually finding the patients aren't getting the care they need what can we do to make this better um if that fails then i think it's appropriate to escalate to e escalate to your consultant whoever's in charge you know appropriate nursing staff mm -hmm. um leadership as well as um directors and then again safety we've already covered that but your, your principal thing i think what you want to get across in this is that they're okay um mm -hmm. you you want to get across that you're generally a kind of a person who assumes the best in people that you're not mm -hmm. going to jump to conclusions that they're lazy or don't mm -hmm. care about their job or um want to actively harm people you want to show that you're going to assume that they've got something going on and i, I kind of just think that's just a generally good <laughs> principle in life always assume the best in people and you're often not wrong and i, and I think you're right because no no one wakes up in the morning wanting to harm someone or perform poorly mm. there's other circumstances that are always going to be there that make someone you know not perform to a standard and i really like that so you know your basic assumption of everyone I think we talk about this in um, in sim all the time, which is you assume that everyone's capable, intelligent, and wants to do their best. Yeah, and that's a great way to lead into this in, into these kind of discussions. That you know, I think you're a great, great doctor, great you know, hardworking person. Are you okay? What's going on? Yeah. Uh, so how about the and that's probably similar with the trainee not coping with the stress of exams. You can do, have a similar kind of discussion for that, um, but I think this one's potentially more tricky. So there's some rare situations that occur if someone say a patient who's elderly potentially uh, without much which without much capacity uh, or if they do have capacity they might have um you know varying levels of conscious consciousness uh and uh, maybe just really frail and elderly like a fractured and off patient who's say over 90 years of age with lots of comorbidities uh and you they may be palliative they might need an end of life discussion and the family may uh, be part of that discussion, but not want them to know more of the details about that, or maybe a cancer diagnosis, for example. Um, and that is really tricky. How, how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, look, this is really hard, and I um I I guess this is one of the few questions I I don't have such prescriptive way that I answer it. Um, you know, you could do the medical school kind of answer where you go to the four pillars of ethical practice, so beneficence, non maleficence, justice, and autonomy, and and they work really well. And you could use that for a phenomenal answer on this sort of question. Alternatively, you can still use pies. So you can still go, well, the most important thing is the patient's safe. Um, and, and I would just give some consideration to the idea that patient safety can can take a lot of different forms. You know, just, just what what is what keeps the patient alive isn't necessarily the best thing or the safest thing for the patient. Um, and there's uh, you know, a lot of emotional and spiritual aspects that come into it that are beyond are they physically well and alive. Um, and I think showing that kind of shows a lot of um a lot of maturity mm -hmm. on your part um and you know tilga wand is being mortal i think covers this in an exceptional way um that, that what, what was that sorry uh, being being mortal by tilga so he um oh, yeah. he, he the entire book is essentially about you know mortality and what um quality of life is and a big chunk of the book is dedicated to um you know uh end of life discussions and palliation and um mm -hmm. uh the care of the elderly and the aged i, I found that if, if there's any one author that you need to read before an interview, it's Atul Gawande. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's you know 
patient safety and performance in terms of the checklist manifesto or, or this current book, was it being mortal? Uh, (laughs) You know, you know, the interesting thing, as you're telling me how you approach these things, I just love that you have a framework. And again, this is one of the things we'll talk about in another, in another session that especially these days when interviews are over zoom, you need to demonstrate that you have a framework because it's very hard to get those visual cues uh, when you're in person in a room with an, with other, with the other interviewers. Uh, and so just saying that, look, the framework I use for this is patient safety, investigate and escalate, and then colleague safety. Hmm. Once you've outlined your framework, you've listed those, the interviewer just knows what you're talking about. And, you know, we, we can then, I guess, ask you to stop or, you know, go, go on in more detail to certain aspects of it that we're interested in, but it shows a really great organization of your knowledge and your, you know, whatever, you know, um, and your plan of action. Uh, so yeah. I, I really like that whatever framework you use, I think highlighting it initially with a list and then going into the detail of it is probably a really good way for everything, whether it's these tricky situations or why do you want to do anesthetics or I'll give you a clinical scenario of a patient in pain, this, ha- having a list of the framework, uh, identifying the framework before you go into the detail is really useful. Exactly. And I think that's also really supported by the fact that that's how we answer vivas and that's mm-hmm. how we actually communicate clinically. So some people, that's what some people yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I think this is kind of how, how um, particularly I think in anesthesia and I think generally in medicine, we communicate in such an effective and concise way. And our exam answers, even if you do a viva or a long case, are often um, articulated that way. So I think we're actually primed to, 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 um, consume information that way. So while I just generally think it's a great way to communicate in interviews, I actually think it's supported by the fact that all these consultants have done a, you know, a lot of exams and have a lot of experience being on the other side of assessing exams, um, that that's how they're used to understanding information. So if you can communicate that way, um, it, it, it kind of definitely helps, helps your case. And um, I think good organization can make a mediocre answer great. Absolutely. I think that's pretty good. So we've covered quite a bit there on the kind of non-clinical aspects, some ethical questions, clinical governance type questions. Uh, again, hopefully, is that is that all we need to cover today, Kaz? Um, I think so. I guess there's variations of this, but you know, yeah. um, uh, if you have any specific questions you want us to cover, obviously give us yeah, an email and we have to discuss. But yeah, yeah. If you if anyone's got any specific questions, something stuff that's really tripped them up. Definitely, we'll happy to give our opinions and hopefully they're reasonable. Uh, so email us at anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com. That's A-N-A-E-S-T-H-E-S-I-A podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T <laughs> at gmail.com. So I better, I better spell this right. There's yeah. a whole bunch of A's and E's in there. <laughs> yeah, great spelling, Bella. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so <laughs> I guess we'll conclude that. So yeah, cue outro music. And thank you very much, everyone, for watching and listening. Uh, again, if you think this, in, this, if you think this is useful, find this useful, please share with anyone who might be, especially now that we're coming up to applications. And for the next episode, we'll go through clinical questions and also the lateral thinking questions, uh, which always can be really easy to trip up on, especially because the clinical questions could be incredibly hard and incredibly, incredibly detailed. So that's all uh, from us for now. Uh, I'm Lahiru. And I'm Kaz. And we'll see you next time.